What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, we're talking to Catherine Robson. Now, Catherine was gracious enough to sit with me and discuss her work on Circus of Books, which is a fantastic documentary you have to check out on Netflix. The documentary covers the documentary covers some parents who end up buying a sex bookshop back in the 80s and how that affects the lives of their children. It's a very fascinating documentary and it was a lot of fun to watch and discuss with Catherine. Now we actually talked about this book just before the Emmys and we did it on FilmmakerU.com's live discussion which happens every Friday on Facebook. So you can go to Facebook.com slash FilmmakerU to check out all the live chats. But with all that said, here's my interview with Catherine Robson. One of the questions I want to ask you right off the top is you got your start at the CBC radio here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, what did you learn in the radio realm of media that you've brought into your filmmaking career? Yeah, I actually think radio was really foundational for me. Um, So it was an internship at CBC. Um, I was working on a program that no longer exists, unfortunately, but it was a program called Outfront, which was all sort of about um, teaching people the skills to tell their own stories, which really excited me at the time and still does. But yeah, the, the person, my, my sort of mentor for the internship, one of the first things he said to me is radio is the most visual medium, which I remember thinking was counterintuitive. But once you actually get into, you know, production, audio production, it's so true because you're having to really paint this visual picture um, just through sound. But yeah, when I moved into video editing, I think I brought that mindset with me. And so when I edit, I really start with the radio cut. You know, I start with that sort of like, can this story function just on its own, just on sort of the merits of the story itself? And then all the visuals become this, you know, really exciting extra component to like, merge in there and obviously the edit changes as you as it becomes a more visual medium but yeah I I really start with a radio cut still to this day. So with your radio cut do you uh, build in some of the sound design as well then from your radio background? I'm sort of one of those editors that I can get really really hyper focused on something so yeah if I have an idea of like oh this would be really interesting to sound design this I might you know (laughs) I might dive deep and pull in all these sound effects and start playing with it. And I always had to just stop myself and be like, okay, no, you're still just trying to figure out the skeleton of this film. Like, don't get too hyper-focused on this one thing that may change actually a lot. So, but yeah, if I sort of feel inspired or excited that there's an opportunity to do that, I'll do it for sure. So for Circus of Books, I know how Rachel Mason got involved. (laughs) Kind of makes sense. It's her parents. So how did you become involved with that project? So actually it was very fortuitous. I had done my uh, master's degree at Ryerson University in Toronto, and my thesis was on a pornography-related topic, basically. I had been looking at sort of like how the internet is changing the way that we think, and when you start doing internet research, you end up landing in this space, you know, in porn studies, and yeah, ultimately I saw this opportunity to, to examine how heterosexual women in particular were engaging with pornography on the internet because there just like wasn't a lot of information about it. But as a part of my research, I, you know, I was doing this very deep dive into queer theory because pornography is a really, you know, it holds like a really important cultural space actually for the gay community, for the LGBTQ community. 
because for so long, it was literally the only place where people could see themselves reflected back to themselves in any way at all. I mean, right? It just didn't exist in, in media, any other spaces. So I kind of knew all that. And I was talking to a friend of mine, actually, another uh, producer from Canada, uh, Vanessa Mayer, and just talking about our academic work and our research. And I mentioned this thesis and she said, Oh my God, I know this director who's making a documentary on their parents' gay porn store. And she's looking for an editor. You, I have to introduce you guys. You have to meet. So yeah, Rachel, we just like set up a meeting and right from the first, you know, meeting with Rachel, I mean, she just told me this incredible story about her family. And I was like, this is such a wild story. This is amazing. I have to be involved with this. And it was a really great rapport between the two of us. So yeah, it was just a good fit. And we started working together. I did love, there's the moment where as a teenager, she realizes what her parents' store actually is. Yeah. You just You just hold on this sort of, jaded teenager image of her and it's, it's a great moment given what you were saying there talking about the, how the internet's changing everything mm-hmm. and how and that's part of the story is how the internet is making porn accessible and no longer needing to go to these places yeah how does that affect the community when all their places are shutting down i'm thinking circus of books but here in toronto uh the beaver bar shut down, right? Which is a bar. So, you know, what do you see, how do you see the community changing or shifting in that perspective if they're no longer visible the way they were? Yeah. I mean, you know, we tackle it in the film because we really wanted to give voice to the older, you know, LGBTQ Mm -hmm. generation as well, who, you know, you could tell that a lot of these people felt like the younger generation actually doesn't get it. Like what the value of these physical spaces were and how that is where community was formed. It, it was this human to human connection, you know, this, this engagement in a physical space that, you know, I think generated a really solid community in a way that I don't know that you can replicate online. And that's not to say that, that a lot hasn't been gained from, you know, online communities. I mean, you can connect with people across vast distances and can't remember who says it, but in the film, somebody's sort of like, well, it's on the one hand, it's nice that, that these spaces are not as necessary anymore that, you know, we, we, you can have, you know, dating apps and you can have bars and, you know, um, whole neighborhoods. And it's, you know, in, in some cities, at least it's a lot more, more safe than it used to be. Um, but that there is something lost, you know, there is that a kind of unity and community that's lost when you lose spaces like Circus of Books. So we weren't trying to lay out any kind of, you know, advocacy. I mean, the store was closed, right? Yeah, so it's not yeah. like we're saving the store. <laughs> you know, it was like kind of inevitable, um, for, at least from Karen and Barry Mason's perspective. Sorry, my cat is about to join us here. <laughs> but yeah, I think we just wanted to have people think about it a little bit and think about what those costs are and what's lost. Well, it seems that everything's sort of shifting, but now we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of communities sort of stepping out and protesting and making themselves known now. Uh, the other the other area that really sort of caught me off guard was uh, the Black Cat Tavern sort of mm-hmm. segment because I had never heard of the, like I'd heard of the Stonewall riots and a few others, but I'd never heard of the Black Cat Tavern. So why wasn't that, like, you don't really go into why it wasn't more prominent in, in the history. 
You know, I, I don't know why it isn't. I mean, I, that was also a new story to me. I didn't know that story. I felt so much more familiar with um, sort of like the gay history of New York and of San Francisco. And I really didn't know about LA, LA's kind of unique history. And, you know, Alexei Romanov, who talks about who's, you know, mm-hmm. who's there and he talks about it in the film. You know, this was several years before Stonewall. I mean, this is is on record of being one of the very first uh, movements towards what became the Pride Pride movement, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why it hasn't been more widely known. I wonder if it's just sort of, I think a lot of LA history just hasn't been retained in the same way. And it, you know, it hasn't, we haven't seen it in movies as much. And so that was something that was really important to Rachel and I to make sure that that made it into the film because it's such a, you know, it's just, it's so foundational. And I thought, mm-hmm. God, nobody knows this. This is really important. Jumping back to your editing, how do you like to find the structure? Because you're going to be handed hours upon hours of footage in a documentary and you need to find the story. So how did you approach that, this film? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, the process is, different from film to film. Some films you go into them and, and the story is really not, the sort of structure in the story isn't, isn't super clear. Um, you're really doing a lot of work to find it. With stories of books, you know, even just my first conversation with Rachel, it was so clear what a great story this was. And it was, you know, 40 years of life lived. I mean, it was all, it, it wasn't necessarily that we were trying to figure out something as it was unfolding, right? It was like, the story has really already happened and the stores are coming to a close, but um, the bulk of what we're seeing here has, has happened. So for this particular process, it was sort of, you know, having a whiteboard, creating all the kind of beats of like, okay, well, these are all the major events that we know we want to talk about. And then just plotting out that kind of rising and falling action and how that was going to make sense. That, that was sort of like for the, the core story of Karen and Barry but we also knew we wanted to have these moments where we jumped out and were able to talk about what was happening for, you know, the LGBTQ community more broadly, just situating it in, in kind of time and place. Um, so, so that was like figuring out where it made sense to do that was a bit of a, you know, weaving those things together structurally was, was a challenge. And then we had these great, like, verite moments with Karen and Barry that were, you know, it didn't necessarily drive the plot forward, but it really, like, allowed you to sort of be with them and and see who they were and understand their personalities and understand the relationship between Rachel and Karen in the process of her trying to make this film. And so, yeah, weaving together where those pieces fit as well. How did you... Because that, that was going to be one of my questions, because watching the mother and particularly Josh, her brother, those two relationships I found, like all the relationships were fascinating, but there seemed like her mother and her, there were little moments where they were sort of not arguing, but they were sort of poking at each other a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, why, where's the boundary for you guys when you're in the editing room? Because, you know, this is Karen's life. Right. And this is Rachel's life. So how do you determine when to pull back and when to show more of that relationship of personal relationship? Yeah. I mean, we didn't, you know, Rachel was so game to just put it all out there. You know, I mean, she's, she has a performance background. She, she has an arts background. I just think she came in with this understanding of that 
yes, this is a personal story, but this is how the creative process works. Like it takes a certain amount of just trying stuff and seeing. So she was really just incredibly brave and generous in that sense. Obviously she had a lot of sensitivity about making sure that her family was protected and you know, that that nobody was sort of going to be at risk or anything. She was really open to the process Karen, I think, was just like, didn't want, <laughs> didn't want to do the documentary from day one. Like she just was, didn't understand what Rachel was making, didn't like the process of making it. I think Rachel said that maybe they had even been approached by other people in the past to say like, oh, we want to do a profile on you. And they, they'd said no. I mean, the only reason they agreed to do it is because it was their daughter. Mm-hmm. But even then it was sort of reluctant. And, and you know, Karen pushed back on Rachel a lot. <laughs> Throughout the process. But I think she just trusted that, I mean, this is her daughter and she's not going to misrepresent her. And, and also that, you know, now which, what you find at the end of the, of the doc is that Karen and Barry are so involved in PFLAG. Part of what they do is they tell their story a lot to sort of help guide other parents with LGBTQ children. So they, they were pretty well versed in that sense of telling certain parts of their story and they were comfortable with that. Other parts they were a little less comfortable with, but, but they were very generous. Well, and I was very surprised that Karen allowed the story of Josh coming out and her reaction to be told, because yeah. that actually was really quite shocking in the film. It was like a really great moment. How did you craft that with everyone's, I guess, keeping in mind their emotions and their involvement in the film? Uh, yeah. Because that's such a touchy subject. Yeah, so Karen, I think, was a lot more comfortable with telling that part of the story in some ways than I think Josh was, because that is part of the story that she frequently tells in PFLAG, in these PFLAG meetings that she often leads. Josh was a lot more nervous about that because I think he really didn't, he didn't want to throw his mother under the bus. That's what's sort of tricky when you're, when you're making a, you know, an archival heavy documentary or a documentary where you're talking about something that happened in the past, you know, Josh is reflecting on this moment that was really, really painful at the time, but he knows, you know, this transformation that his mother went through and the fact that she's become this incredible, incredible advocate. So, but we can't, you know, he can't say like, well, she said this, but then she actually turned it all around. And now she, you know, it's like, no, we have to let the audience sit with the fact that that was what happened and it was painful in that time. And I think that was hard for him. I mean, they're, they're really close-knit, loving family. And yeah, he, he was, I mean, he was willing to be honest and obviously so great and so vulnerable in telling that, you know, telling that story. But he was more concerned about it than Karen was, for sure. Was there a moment or a scene or a character, or, and I shouldn't use character, or a person who you really wanted to get into the film, but it just didn't serve the story? Trying to think. Um, it's been to be honest, it's been so long since I've seen all the footage that wasn't in the film. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember if there was anybody who who didn't really make it in. I don't think so. I think we got all the sort of key interviews in. <clears throat> Is there a scene then that you wanted to cut out, or sorry, you wanted to leave in but had to be cut out? There were scenes. There were definitely scenes. There were scenes and there were story points like. You know, there's other parts of Karen and Barry's backstory that are so fascinating that we would be finding out, like, 
at the like in real time as we're making the, the movie as we're deep in the edit i think barry we were doing a um a pickup interview with barry and he suddenly divulged that his mother had had dated the getaway driver for al capone or something like, <laughs> like what <laughs> like, oh, you know it's so amazing but you're like i guess that doesn't really have anything to do with this story but that's amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're going to have to have a, a sequel now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just, they could have their own series probably just on them. Um, so there was that. And then there were just really, there were other sort of slice of life, Karen and Barry scenes that were so funny. There was one where they're at a wholesaler and they're buying bongs. They're buying sort of like, you know, just different yeah. stuff. And it's kind of a head shop in addition to being a gay porn store. So they have just a variety of different things that they sell. And it's just, you know, it's Karen, like, picking up big glass bongs and, you know, being like, is this a bong? <laughs> I mean, like, equally as comical as, as all the other scenes, but you just couldn't, you just can't fit it all in, unfortunately. Now, you've also, because um, you're also part of the, you're the producer in this, and you've also produced other documentaries and, and shows. So one of the things in producing is getting the interview or convincing someone who might not want to do an interview to do one. So yeah. how do you approach that uh, as a producer, try and convince someone? So I came on board a little bit later as a producer. Mm -hmm. Rachel initially was working um, with our producer, Cynthia, who she had done really so much of the legwork and lining up all the probably toughest to get interviews, like, and, and Rachel as well. I mean, Rachel also produced it, but yeah, getting the interviews with like Alaska or, you know, people where it's like, these are not necessarily easy people to reach. I, my impression was that despite the fact that these people are maybe very much in demand for interviews, one, they knew it was about Circus of Books and they knew it was about Karen and Barry. They were actually just totally on board to do it because they really, you know, had a love for the store and had a love for them. I think same with Jeff Stryker. Um, so the interviews that I when you know, by the time I came on board as a producer, which is really when we we're moving into post, but knew we had a little bit more shooting to do. Most of the filming we had to do was with Karen and Barry and Josh and Micah. And they were already, they had already sort of, you know, realized that this was a real project and it was really happening and they wanted to support Rachel. So, so I didn't have to do a lot of that hard work. <laughs> Lucky for me. Well, I was thinking on, because you've done other docs, like the um, 75th anniversary of Captain America, or 70th anniversary of Captain America. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just wondering how, how do you approach that? Yeah, I think that one was actually not as difficult, um, partly because we were working with Marvel to do it. And a lot of the people we were interviewing were, um, you know, comic book writers and people who who have, you know, have a lot of love for the work that they do, but don't get a lot of opportunity to talk to people about it. <laughs> so those tend to be easier interviews to get. Um, I, I did work on a documentary where it was, it was kind of a more celebrity driven doc. It was, um, it was called The Rainbow and Sunset and it was about the rainbow bar. Yeah, the rainbow room. The rainbow, yeah, exactly. So it was a lot of like, rockers and like, you know, like Ozzy Osbourne and like that was tougher to line up those interviews because you're mostly dealing with, you know, you're not, it's rare that you're dealing with those people directly. It's you're going through teams of, you know, managers and PR people. But again, I think it's just 
you want to approach everyone in good faith to sort of say like, this isn't like, we're just trying to tell this story and you're an important part of it. And we just want to hear your, you know, honestly, what you have to say about it. And you don't have to answer any questions that you don't feel comfortable answering or, you know, it's, I think just having respect for the fact that it's very generous of people to participate in the documentary. You really can't make it without them. <laughs> so yeah, give extending the same generosity and respect back that they are offering you by even considering, you know, being willing to participate. So. For the, the Rainbow Room documentary, were you able to get Lemmy? We did get Lemmy. We did get Lemmy. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, I remember that shoot day just sort of, you know, being like, because he literally would be at the bar every single day. Yeah, just, just playing the game. The right. So we showed up <laughs> to the with him and he was there. There he was. He was sitting at the bar playing his, you know, computer game and yeah, and we just, we did the interview right there at the bar in that. And then when we heard that he passed away, it was so sad because he was, you know, such a, such an iconic figure and so integral to sort of that story in that space. But yeah, we were really lucky to get that interview with him. Well, and he seems, at least anytime I, he seems really like roughed edged, but he seems really nice, like and genuine. So nice, so genuine, just like, just incredibly down to earth actually like just, just he really is just the guy he's just the regular at your neighborhood bar like he there's a reason he was there every day you know and he would talk to anybody you know it was he was not uh, not a big ego on money at all now to jump back to circus of books you guys were shooting as you were editing how mm-hmm. did that impact you in the editing suite so I, you know, most of the documentary projects I've worked on, that's that's been the process, and I think that's I think that's true for most documentaries. Is it's a lot more reflexive, right? It's not like a scripted film where you have these shoot days and then you're done, and maybe you get to do some pickups, but that's kind of it. You know, doc is a lot more exploratory. You don't you don't know necessarily the story you're telling until you get into the edit bay. So in part, that's why I, I like editing and producing because. It, like they sort of reinforce each other, you know, in a way it's really helpful for me to be on set and kind of see through the eyes of an editor and think like, oh, I, I don't think we quite have it. Or like, we need to make sure that we, you know, it can be simple stuff. Like we need to make sure we get some B-roll or we need to make sure we get some coverage because I know if we don't have that, this is going to be impossible to edit, <laughs> you know? And vice versa, you know, being an editor and being able to think through a producer's lens of even questions of like how expensive something might be or what can we fair use and what can we not fair use. Um, so yeah, I think they're kind of reinforcing positions. You know, the more that everybody involved in a documentary can be in a constant dialogue with each other, I think it, I think it just like serves to make a better documentary as opposed to having it be this siloed process. Now you're working on your next project, South Commons, mm-hmm. but COVID's hit. So how, how are you, are you still working on that? How is that work when you can't really go to locations yeah so i'm not editing or sorry not producing south commons i'm just editing it um so we've just been really focusing on that focusing on the material that we've been able to shoot so far and kind of figuring out that structure and i mean we're in the very early stages um we've only got i think you know a handful of shoot days so far we also have this like trove of incredible archival, you know, footage and photographs. So it's sort of figuring out like, oh, how are we piecing this all together with, with all this amazing material? In terms of moving forward for shooting, I mean, it's just, I think, you know, everybody's in the same boat. You're, you can sort of plan and, and you can talk about, you know, when it's safe, this is what we'll do. But in the meantime, it's sort of 
plot is just on hold. And, you know, it's not a bad time for documentary, actually, which is which is sort of interesting that particularly if you're working with a lot of archival materials, there is, you know, you can get pretty far, actually, you can sort of get the projects far enough that you can have a sense of what it's going to be. So that when you can film again, you really can hit the ground running. Now, I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview. Hmm. What would you say your guilty pleasure film is? My guilty pleasure film? I probably have so many, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been indulging a lot of them during this uh, quarantine. Um, I think the the one that comes to mind, because I watched it recently, what is Poltergeist? Uh, I yeah that's a great one it's really good I don't even know if it constitutes a guilty pleasure because it is actually just like so good (laughs) (laughs) but I've been talking to everybody who will listen to me I'm like I don't know if you've watched it recently but Poltergeist is so good like you have to watch it and just thinking about the VFX at those time at that time it's remarkable well just this horror movie that you know it holds up from a horror standpoint but it, it has that, you know, kind of Spielberg heart and like, it's like this family story and it's really a story about like love and, you know, a mother's love for her kids. It's like, it's like equally <laughs> terrifying and also heartwarming, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Thank and you. good luck with the Emmys. I'm, I'm rooting for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. So that was my interview with Catherine. I'd like to thank Catherine for allowing me to interview her. I'd also like to thank Netflix for setting this up. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.